So I don't know if you were aware of it or not, but last Wednesday was, was Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent. And so we're going to return to John's Gospel. And it's maybe a little unusual to do this, but it's not. You know, sometimes you can discover interesting things by doing unusual things. Um, and so we're going to follow John's account of Jesus' arrest and trial and death and so on on the Sundays leading up to Easter. Now, typically, that's what we would focus on during Holy Week and in Easter itself. And we'll, we'll either look at parts of John or we'll look at another gospel in Holy Week. But we're going to just uh, return to John because it's now landed that we can do that in, in, uh, throughout, throughout these next few weeks. So we're going to look at John chapter 18. If you want to open up your Bible, if you haven't got one and you want to borrow one, there's uh, Bibles down on the tables at the front here. The words will be on the screen behind, but if you want to keep one open um, so you can check I'm not preaching heresy, then you need to borrow one. <laughs> take it for granted. I might just slip a wee heresy in just to see if you're paying attention. (laughs) There's plenty to choose from. John 18 verse 1. And so just to recap, it's uh, a few weeks now since Lorna preached on chapter 17. Uh, John records Jesus' prayer, but you'll notice when we get to chapter 18 that it's not the prayer that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record because they have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which he goes to after he crosses the Kidron Valley. And his prayer in the garden uh, is a prayer of anguish and, and preparing his own heart and will to uh, accept the cup or the cup of suffering that the Father uh, has set before him. And so it says anguish as he uh, bows the knee and his will in obedience to the Father. The prayer in John 17 was a three-part prayer, as you know. Jesus prayed for uh, the disciples, and then he prayed for, um, uh, prayed to be glorified, prayed for his disciples, and then prayed for all believers. Uh, So it was a prayer for others rather than a prayer for himself. So, chapter 18, verse 1, uh, and we find that the, the prayer that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record isn't recorded by John. It probably belongs between verses uh, 1 and 2 as we read chapter 18. So, let's read that now. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, "'Who is it you want?' "'Jesus of Nazareth,' they replied." I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. 
Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had, and maybe I should have set this as a, a kind of table talk question, if when you were a kid or maybe a teenager, how many of you here built dens in the woods? Oh, okay, most of you. All right, okay. And uh, how many of you were in, I want to say gangs, I'm not talking flick knives here, I'm just talking a bunch of pals playing in your dens. I mean, was your den a kind of secret place for you and a few select pals? Yeah? Okay. All right. Well, for some people it was. Uh, how many people built themselves a den and just sat in it on their own? Okay. <laughs> These are the introverts. <laughs> so some people need that space on their own, and some people uh, need that space to be with their pals, with their group. Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley. Uh, in the wet season, the Kidron Valley fills up, uh, and the Kidron Valley is certainly after the weather. We've had it in February, would be full to overflowing, but this time of year, the Kidron Valley was uh, bare and dry, dusty. And the Kidron Valley, if you haven't been to Jerusalem, Jerusalem is a wall, the old city of Jerusalem as it is now, because Jerusalem is a much bigger city, it's grown on every side around it, but the original walled city of Jerusalem sits up high. Part of the reason for that was uh, it was initially built on the top of a hill, um, the Jebusite capital, and, but then it was captured under David's reign and, and so over successive centuries knocked down and rebuilt. And of course, the easiest way of uh, rebuilding a city when you knock it down is just to build on top of what you've knocked down. So gradually, the city gets a little bit higher. And one of the best ways of doing archaeology in Jerusalem is just to go down, because you just get a vertical section of all of these layers of antiquity. And so the city of Jerusalem uh, was surrounded by some valleys, the Hinnom Valley and the Kidron Valley. They used to burn rubbish in the Kidron Valley. That was how they managed the rubbish. They didn't have recycling centers. They just took it and burned it out, uh, which is why uh, the Valley of Gehenna is described as a place of a fire that never goes out. It's based on the Hinnom Valley, Gehenna, Hinnom, uh, because the rubbish, they were always burning rubbish. So the fires of burning the rubbish never went out. So it was a, a, an image for them. Anyway, that's not what I want to talk about, but I get distracted easily. So he crossed the Kidron Valley and uh, went to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you go on a Holy Land tour, the first place they will take you to is the, uh, the top of the Mount of Olives where Jesus came down on uh, the, 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 the foal of a donkey and came down the Mount of Olives and crossed the Kidron Valley and went into Jerusalem. 
Uh, and from the top of the Mount of Olives, you get that classic picture postcard view of the temple that you've probably all seen with the, the, the mosque that's got the gold dome and the mosque that's got the silver dome. Well, back in the day, that wasn't uh, a site for mosques. It was a site where the temple was. And so it was a pretty spectacular, imposing view that you could stand at the top of the Mount of Olives, ta-da, and there was this picture, this majestic, enormous building uh, that was the center of the Jewish faith and uh, a sign of the presence, the dwelling place of God. Down at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, there's a garden. It's still there. It's walled, uh, not walled, it's fenced in now. Uh, You're not allowed to go in because it would be wrecked if they allowed tourists to go in there. But in that garden, there are a significant number of very, very old olive trees. Olive trees live a long time. Our one didn't live very long at all. (laughs) But that's our fault, not it. And the poor soul tried as hard as it could to survive in adverse circumstances. They're not designed for indoors. We've learned our lesson. Sorry. But olive trees under the right circumstances and the right climate just go on forever. And in actual fact, uh, those who know these things have, have examined these olive trees, and I'm sure most of you know this already, but those olive trees that are in the Garden of Gethsemane are old enough to have been the very ones that were there when Jesus was there. That's how old they are. That's quite a thought, isn't it? It's quite a thought that there are still living trees in that garden that Jesus prayed amongst in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, John, as I told you, doesn't give us the prayer that you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But there's a little reference. You probably picked it up in verse 11. Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And so John picks up the theme, if not the prayer of anguish, that in his heart he knew that he had to do what it was that the Father had called him to. Not under duress, not with a heavy, grudging heart, but he'd come to that place of submission. And you know, I reckon that that's true of all of us. I reckon that we all know what it's like to wrestle to the place where we say yes to God. I'm suspicious of the person who says, yes, no problem, anything you say, and doesn't sometimes have to wrestle with it. Jesus told a parable of the sore. And the seed that fell on shallow ground was the seed that sprang up quickly. It was the yes seed that popped up quickly, but had no root. And in adversity of the heat of the sun withered and died. And to be a Christian is to turn your life, your decisions, who and what you are and will be, the direction of your life, your finances, your relationships, your choices, your career, over to God and say, here is my life, take it, do with it what you will. And I don't know what that might mean. So there's a big step of faith in believing in Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Of course, the disciples knew that. Peter When everyone else was deserting Jesus at one point, Peter and the others said, when Jesus said, do you want to go too? He said, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And there's the wrestle. We know that he is the truth. He is the way. He is the life. That there's only salvation and forgiveness, a relationship with God. There's only hope in this world through Jesus. But the other side of that is he says, come to me. 
and give me who you are. Don't just cherry pick the best bits. Don't just cherry pick the, the forgiveness and the blessings and the provision, but think you can do that without matching that with turning your life over to me and letting me be Lord of who you are and how you live and what you do. And so Jesus had wrestled in the garden, and then he goes straight to the uh, arrival of Judas. I never really thought about this before, but it says uh, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. But in the next verse, it says, Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Think about your childhood den, those of you that had it as a, as a, as a gang HQ for your nefarious activities as a 13-year-old boy or girl, where you could uh, get up to all sorts and hatch your plans and cunning schemes of mischief and all the rest of it. Can you imagine if one of the group, and, and again, if I talk about rival gangs, we're still not talking flick knives here, okay? Just keep it, keep it, keep it PG. But can you imagine if you had some kind of uh, friendly rivalry, should we call it, or even some kind of modest neighborhood war, and one of your gang brought the other lot to see where your gang HQ was, how would you feel? You'd feel a bit betrayed, right? You'd feel a bit like, what are you doing? <laughs> this is our private place. This is our den. This is our place that we built and we hang out here and this belongs to us. And you've gone over to the other side and you've brought one of them into our space. And, and so perhaps at that very moment, here comes Judas with a detachment of soldiers. Now, let's be clear who these soldiers were, by the way. These are not Roman soldiers. Okay, Rome at this stage is not interested in Jesus. Rome has got its hands full with a million other things. Even in Israel, Rome is busy. It's busy extracting taxes and building roads and uh, suppressing riots and trying to work out where the next insurrection of rebellion is going to come from. Rome doesn't care about Jesus of Nazareth. It hasn't got to Pilate yet, so he's not interested. So these soldiers then, who are they? Who is this detachment? How many people here have been to the Vatican? Maybe been to Rome? All right. So have you seen the Pope's soldiers? So the Pope has an army. Google them. The Swiss Guard. They have the most awesome uniforms on earth. I want one. But they're a bit of a crack SAS team, or so it seems. In fact, I learned an interesting factoid when I was researching this yesterday, which is that Pope Francis sacked the commanding officer of the Swiss Guard because he, was too, he thought he was too brutal, because he was making the Swiss Guard stay on watch for hours on end without a break. And there came one point where, Swiss, eh, where Pope Francis was going past and he saw a couple of these guys who were basically collapsed in a chair. And Pope Francis went and got, them, got the guy a cappuccino. I think that's quite nice. But then he 
decided that the rule was a bit draconian, so he's replaced the head of the Swiss Guard. So the Swiss Guard are an army that was first conceived back, I think, was it the 1500s? I'm not quite sure. I did read the history, but I didn't retain it, and I didn't think you needed to know. But the Swiss Guard are the Pope's army. Well, the high priest, the temple guard, there was a squad, a battalion, if you like, of soldiers who were Jewish and under the jurisdiction of the high priest. So this was, if you like, the police force of the temple, of the temple courts, under the sway of the high priest. Now, it matters that they were Jewish. We'll get to that bit in just a little bit, minute. And so he, Judas comes guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials. So we've got the, 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 the note takers, we've got, the, uh, we've got the, 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 some of the, the soldiers and some of the people who are part of uh, the machine that was the temple. Now the chief priests belong to the party of the Sadducees, they controlled the temple. The priesthood, the Levites, and so on, belonged to the party of the Sadducees. The Pharisees uh, were mixed in with them to some extent, but were more concerned with matters of correct law and interpretation. And this is your original villagers with torches and pitchforks scene, because they come at night carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. And so they come at night... They come at night, even though the power is on their side. They come at night because what they're doing is not part of, uh, is, is not, in a sense, uh, just or legitimate. It's underhand. They've paid a man to betray his master, his rabbi, in order that they could get some information. So this is a little sting operation that's been set up on the side to get Jesus in. So I just want to reflect with you. When I looked at this passage, I wanted to reflect with you about some of the characters and the people in this story and then come back to a fairly important part in uh, this little passage. So who have we got that's in this story We've got Judas, the traitor. And I want to think with you a little bit about power, what power they had. Judas was, of course, one of the disciples who had been sent out in pairs of, in pairs, sorry, I was going to say in pairs of two. (laughs) Been sent out in pairs with the authority of Jesus to preach, to heal, and to drive out demons. And so we have no reason to suppose that Judas was exempt from that just because he turned out to be a traitor. And the gospel doesn't tell us otherwise. So Judas at some point had gone out with one other disciple to some of the villages and had preached the kingdom, had been involved in driving out demons and in exercising a ministry of healing in the name of Jesus. And so he had experienced heavenly power. He had experienced what it was to be a channel, not just a a member of the team, not just one of the chosen ones, but actually the, the first fruits of being a conduit of the power of God. And yet, in this scene, we see that he has crossed from being a conduit of heavenly power to being a conduit of earthly power. 
He is now a, 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 a link in the chain from Caiaphas the high priest to Jesus. And so there's a literal crossing uh, of sides. And I suppose it's the challenge to us to ask ourselves, by what power we operate? Now, not every one of us necessarily will exercise a gift of, of preaching or healing or driving out demons. That's not what I'm suggesting. But Judas in that moment was utterly dependent on God, showing him the next move, was utterly dependent on God, empowering him for what he was supposed to do. And yet now he had crossed over to earthly resources, to wit and to wile and to schemes and to a little bit of money grabbing. And so there's Judas. And Judas was therefore a traitor. People will let you down. You and I have let other people down. And in this world, people will disappoint you. Even people who pledge their loyalty to you. Even those who you believe to be your close friends. Let's think about Malchus. We don't really know much about him. I've always thought servant to the high priest, he was just some kind of lowly boy, you know, wearing a simple tabard or something like that. You know, that he was maybe some kind of, you know, um, household servant or something. I've never really thought much about Malchus. But then I got to thinking about Malchus, thinking, no, I've got this wrong. Malchus wasn't some boy who took the rubbish out. It wasn't some kitchen hand who prepared vegetables. Malchus is leading the delegation. He is the servant of the high priest. He's the one, it seems. I mean, after all, if Peter was going to strike out at anyone, he would probably go for the guy who was leading the delegation, right? And so Malchus then is a man, it seems, if I'm correct, a man of... of Entrusted power, importance, responsibility. He's someone who has had a certain amount of earthly power devolved to him. And so, if you like, Malchus uh, represents the ordinary powers that be, the, the, the functionaries of the system. Might represent the, the, the temporary political systems, the powers of this world because he's drawing his power from the power of the high priest. But it's a, it's a political power. And then there's Simon Peter, Jesus' lead disciple. Again, he was one of the twelve who had gone out. And he, like Judas, had experienced the flow and the rush and the excitement of the Spirit of God working in and through him, bringing healing bringing cleansing, bringing deliverance, preaching the kingdom. And yet, in this moment, he too, he too resorted to earthly power. And I suppose uh, Simon Peter maybe in some ways represents friends and family because of all of the disciples. Simon Peter was Jesus' main man, right? You are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. 
He was the one who was the leader of the church. And so Simon Peter represents friends and family to some extent. Who else do we have? After Jesus was finally arrested after the fracas with Malchus, and it's Luke that tells us that Jesus reached out his hand and healed Malchus' ear and restored it to him. He doesn't tell us the name. John gives us that, but Luke tells us that Jesus immediately healed the man. And then we're told two more names that Jesus has taken off to Annas, who is the father-in-law of the high priest. So he's if you like, an an earthly power too, but masquerading as a divine power. He is a senior figure in the uh, religious establishment. He's the father-in-law of the current high priest, so he's got a certain amount of clout and influence. And probably he represents tradition, the power of the generations, the religious powers, the old wineskins of the Jewish way and the way it had been. And then we've got Caiaphas, who is the current high priest. And the high priest commanded enormous respect in the uh, religious hierarchy of the day. And so the high priest, in some respects, represents uh, the, the, the kind of, not just the religious authority, but the political authority of the day. The Romans knew that to keep the Jews in order, they had to cut them some slack regarding their religious systems. They had to cut them some slack regarding their right to worship and to celebrate their worship in the temple and so on. They knew that they had to give them a little bit of space to do that. And Caiaphas was a figurehead. He was an archbishop of Canterbury. He was a pope for the Jewish religious system. But he was a political figure as well. So you've got all of these people. All right, let's put Jesus in amongst them, because Jesus is in amongst them. Because in this world, we operate within all of these relationships and systems, friends and family, local little officials, religious systems, political systems, all of these different relationships and powers. And in the midst of them, they came looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Note they didn't come looking for Jesus, son of David. They didn't come looking for Jesus, the Messiah. They didn't come looking for Jesus, the Holy One. They didn't even come looking for Jesus, the rabbi. They just came looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And so, in their eyes, there is no faith, no recognition. They don't see anything other than a guy from a hill town in the north who's causing trouble. And Jesus, in verse 5, when he asked them who they want, and and they say, Jesus of Nazareth, in verse 5, he says, I am he, according to the New International Version. According to the Greek, however, he says two words, ego aimi. Now, I know I've spoken to you about those two words before, but in case you weren't here when I did, ego, I me, is the Greek for I am. So what? I am, of course, 
all the way back to the Old Testament, to the point where Moses said to God on Mount Sinai, who shall I say is sending me? When God commanded Moses to go and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses said, give me a name. Who will I say? If I go back and say, uh, God has told me to, to, to lead his people out of Egypt, who will I say? And God said, tell them I am has sent you. My name is I am who I am. We sang earlier on, we love to sing your name, Yahweh. And actually, there are four letters in that. Forget the A and forget the E in Yahweh. All you need is the Y-W-W-H, and to get it right. Or in Hebrew, the letters are Yod, which is a Y, He, which is a H, Vav, which is a V or a W, and a he, yod he, vav he, which is another her, which is why sometimes it's written as Yahweh, and sometimes it comes out as Jehovah, because the vowels aren't there. And so you can, it's the same word, and it means I am, which is why the power of all of the I am sayings of Jesus in John's gospel is so phenomenal, because John particularly records Jesus as saying, I am. Now, in the ears of the Jewish people, for any mere mortal to say of themselves, I am, was blasphemy. In John 8, chapter 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I tell you, I am. The Jehovah's Witnesses, by the way, have retranslated that because it's inconvenient for them to suggest that Jesus might be God. And so instead of I am, they've retranslated it to say I have been. It's not what the Greek says. The Greek says I am. Because Jesus took the name of God quite emphatically, not just once, I am he in verse 5. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And then in verse 8, I told you that I am he. And again, it just says, I told you that I am. Now, I feel the urge to invite you to take those two words that Jesus spoke and put them right into your life right now. Jesus says into the midst of your life, your struggles, your uncertainties, the place you're living at in life and in the world and in your trajectory or whatever you think is happening, Jesus says to you, I am. That's quite a solid reassuring thing to take in, isn't it? But in amongst all of the uncertainties, coronavirus, climate change, politics, all the things, in amongst all of these players who represent the different frailties and brokennesses of our world, the friend that betrays or lets you down. The family member who, with well-intentioned zeal, 
is making things messy, difficult, or painful, as Peter did for Malchus, and in that scene just got it so wrong. Annas, with his confidence that tradition and religion and the way things always have been would be his resting place. Caiaphas, a political operator in a religious system. You see, we live in amongst all of these forces of church and society, of petty officialdom, of failed friendships, of traitors and broken relationships. And in amongst all of it, Jesus says, I am. They may be. Some of them have been. Others will be. Might be. But Jesus says, I am. This is the beginning of Jesus' journey. It's the beginning of Jesus' journey, not of defeat, not of being brought in and overwhelmed and overpowered. In amongst all of these entities of people flexing their powers, whether of betrayal or a right arm with a sword in it, or the religious system at their beck and call, or the political machinations that they could command and move around. Jesus spoke two words, and John tells us a curious thing, that they drew back and fell to the ground. It's an odd thing to put in, isn't it? They drew back and fell to the ground, which is why I told you before that they were Jewish soldiers. Roman soldiers wouldn't have got it. But you see, these were Jewish soldiers who worked for the elite of the religious establishment. Every one of them knew their stuff to the extent. But interestingly enough, when Jesus says, I am, they don't pick up stones to stone them. It's like they're on the back foot. It's like when Jesus says those two words, there is a wave of power like some sci-fi electromagnetic pulse that just goes through the lot, a move of the power and the Spirit of God. Jesus is Lord of this journey. This journey will be his arrest, his trial, his flogging, and his execution, and he is Lord of it. He's not broken and defeated by circumstance or earthly powers. He's not overcome. He's Lord of what's going on. Indeed, Jesus, in verse 4, says, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out to them. Jesus knows all that is going to happen to you and to me. The good things and the not-so-good things. The blessings and the challenges. The things it's better that we don't know because sufficient unto the day are the troubles thereof. 
But in the midst of all of this, can you hold in your heart the presence of Jesus who says to you by name, I am. Caiaphas had made a prophecy. It was an accurate prophecy. He just misinterpreted it. His prophecy had been that it would be good if one man died for the people. And often the church gets it wrong. (laughs) We have the word of God, but we don't always understand it. But Caiaphas uttered his statement, thinking that it would be better for Israel and for his little political system if one man was put to death almost as a, as a sacrifice to throw to the Romans to show that they meant business with uh, rebels and uprisers and potential troublemakers. We will make an example of this Jesus of Nazareth, and Rome will be convinced that we are uh, uh, re- respecting their right to rule us, and they will allow us to carry on with our worship. Wrong interpretation. Yes, it will be good for one man to die for the people, but not just little Israel, the country the size of Wales. <laughs> it will be good for one man to die for all the peoples of the world. His vision wasn't big enough, which is why he couldn't see Jesus in the first place. His vision wasn't big enough because it was so eclipsed by his self-importance, by his earthly power, by his little empire, by his status, as transient and temporary as it was. And there's always the danger for us that our little empire, our preoccupations, the things that concern and bother and upset and distress us, eclipse to us the reality that Jesus is Lord and that his is the bigger and the biggest and the most important picture. And so we're going to move to communion together.